0: Well, it's an honor to be with you all today and um, having met some of you guys last night. Um, back in May of 1993, a lady by the name of Susie Beckert had wrote a book entitled The All Better Book. And in this book, she took some of the most world's complexing problems that, and uh, posed quest- put them in the question form and posed them to children. Uh, She thought that with their common sense and boundless imagination, that uh, they would have something to say about our issues today. So one of the questions that she posed to kids, is it hard for you guys to see over there? Is it better for me to be back there? All right, sorry, I'll do that. So I can, I notice it was harder to connect Uh, with the balcony, there, now I can see you. so one of the questions that she posed to these kids was, with billions of people in the world, someone should be able to figure out a system by which no one has to be lonely. And uh, so what do you suggest? Max, who was at age nine, said this, make food that talks to you when you eat. <laughs> For instance, it could say, how are you doing? Uh, what happened today? Uh, talking food might you know, cut down on loneliness, um, at least Max thinks so. Uh, Kalina, who is age 8, says, People should find lonely people and ask their names and address. Then ask people who aren't lonely their names and address. And when you have an even amount, assign lonely and non-lonely people together in a newspaper. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, she has some good administrative abilities that uh, probably could use in many places. Um, And then finally, Max, at age 8, says, we could get people a pet or a husband or a wife and take them to places. (laughs) Yeah, you know, pet, husband, wife, one of those. But with billions of people in the world, someone should be able to come up and figure out a system by which no one has to be lonely. And someone has. Uh, I like the way that uh, Dallas Willard puts it. He says, God's aim in human history is the creation of an inclusive community of loving persons with himself at the very center. That's what God is up to in human history. The creation of this inclusive, loving community, one that wants to embrace anybody who would like to be a part of it, with God himself at the center of that community. But, you know, deep within the fallen human spirit is there's this tendency to exclude in fact, uh, the act of exclusion, we kind of like to divide you know, people from us and them, and I'm not talking about people just being different than us. That's obviously been the case since Adam and Eve. Differences enrich community. I'm talking about taking a posture of rejection or withdrawal toward others, where we refuse to offer people our hearts or, helping, or a helping hand, when we deliberately indulge in feelings of superiority at their expense. Now, I I personally, uh, I didn't grow up in a Christian household. Um, I would say my parents were immoral. I just didn't understand where those morals came from. But I found Jesus through my social fraternity at college, like I'm sure most of you did. Uh, (laughs) And... uh, you know, I, I, there was a couple of guys in my fraternity who had become Christians and they stuck in the fraternity to reach people like me. I was paying my way through college, my undergrad years, and I couldn't afford college and the, you know an apartment at the same time. And so I just kind of mentioned this in passing. And one of my brothers was there, the fraternity brothers, and uh, said, well, you can come and stay with us for free. And I thought about it for about two seconds and I said, sure, you got a deal. And uh, that's where I learned to surf uh, couches quite well. But it was their life that really kind of took me because uh, up to that point, I hadn't met Christians before, but I I'd never met any Christian that was, like, seemed to live a transformative life, and these guys seemed to live like that. They were extending this warm welcome to me, and so I became interested about who this Jesus character was that they kind of talked about. And it was there I began to study the life of Jesus through the Gospels. And one of the things that made Jesus my hero and my Savior is how he lived his life. He seemed to expand the table of fellowship to the most outrageous people. From the prostitutes to the tax collectors. From children to those close at death. From leopards to the outcast. Everybody was accepted. Uh, everybody kind of was close to him except for the religious people. The Pharisees despised him. They hated him because he didn't seem to respect the purity codes that had been established in their culture. For example, just before the story of the Gentile woman that we heard today in the reading of Mark 7, which is our focus, we see that the Pharisees were quite upset that Jesus' disciples were eating with hands that were unclean, right? Jesus didn't seem to respect their purity code. And what they considered clean and dirty. Not only that, but Jesus went and made all food clean, which really got them upset because Jesus was seemingly now violating scripture itself. It seems as if Jesus was redefining what was dirty and what was clean. Every society has purity codes uh, where we decide what's clean and dirty. For example, there are accounts of the first Europeans being disgusted at the Indians' habits, uh, the native Indians here, of emptying their nasal passages onto the ground, just as the Indians were disgusted that these people kept their snot in a pocket handkerchief. (laughs) One Indian is recorded as saying, if you like that filth so much, give me your handkerchief and I will soon fill it for you. There were similar issues when the Europeans arrived in other places. The Pacific Islanders could not believe that these people actually emptied their bowels inside their homes, just as the Europeans could not believe that these people emptied theirs straight into the sea. And some Africans concluded that the reason that the strange white people arrived with such elaborate and excessive clothing is that they wanted to keep their gases close to their bodies. What is defined as dirty or clean is not as straightforward as we may think. If my shoes are in the dinner table, they are dirty. If the same shoes are in the closet, they could be clean. Same shoes, different places. A can of Coke in the plowed field is litter. It's a dirty object. But if that can is placed on a supermarket shelf, not only is it clean but any soil from that ploughed field would itself become the dirt. The same food that was on my dinner plate just a moment ago all of a sudden becomes untouchable filth if it's dumped into the trash. Dirt, it seems, is not a fixed idea, but occurs when matter is out of place. And thus, it is created as a byproduct of our deciding what is the right place for this particular thing. So, whenever we create order and construct a society, we make decisions about what is in or out, what is right or wrong, and thus what is clean or dirty. Um, If if we're to keep the world an orderly place, we need to respect these dirt boundaries, right? We don't eat food that's been discarded. We don't drop litter. We don't empty our bowels in the wrong place, and these dirt boundaries we create exert a sense of a social control, right? Societies tend to determine what is clean and unclean and legislate it in order to punish those who persistently cross the boundaries between them. Now just before our passage Mark narrated two healing stories in Jesus in Jewish territory and now he's narrating two in Gentile territory. We see earlier in this chapter that Jesus reevaluates dirt boundaries with food and makes all food clean. And again in this passage we heard read to us Jesus reevaluates well-established dirt boundaries as a result of these reevaluations he becomes a place of refuge for those who had previously been labeled as dirty. Because we're unfamiliar with Jesus's culture, we often miss the scandal of this particular encounter that was read to us from Mark 7. See, in conventional, particularly the, the Gentile woman, in conventional Mediterranean honor culture, it would have been unconceivable for an unknown, unrelated woman to approach a man in the privacy of his residency. Worse, The woman is a Gentile soliciting a favor from a Jew. This insult uh, explains Jesus' initial rebuff, which many interpreters find troubling when he calls her a dog. He is responding as any normal Jew male would, defending the collective honor of his people. Jesus' insult may echo a rabbinic saying of the time, he who eats with an idolater is like one who eats with a dog. But the stipulation that the children must be first satisfied suggests a deeper symbolic issue. The theme of eating has reoccurred throughout this section of Scripture. The disciples go on mission without bread, even as Herod throws a lavish banquet. The crowds are satisfied in the wilderness feeding, yet the disciples do not understand the meaning of the bread. And in the controversy with the Pharisees, we're told twice that the disciples were eating bread with unwashed hands. The pattern of the bread is sustained by this Gentile's woman's bold, surprising effort. Yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table eat the crumbs that were meant for the children. Social etiquette has now been strained to the breaking point that she dares to turn Jesus' own words back upon him, yet she's only defending the rights of her people to be at the table. The real jolt, however, is the story's conclusion. Jesus, who in Mark's gospel, masters every other opponent in verbal battle, concedes the argument to her, saying, you may go, the demon has left your daughter. You see, Jesus allowed his privileged status as a Jewish male to be severely insulted by a Gentile woman for the sake of inclusivity. So must the collective identity of Judaism suffer indignity from the perspective of honor culture by seeing its traditional social boundaries open to the Gentiles. So we see through this healing that not only is all food clean, but all are welcome at the table. The strange thing is today is that we often don't welcome the Jew to the table. It seems like the tables have been turned. But if we're going to be found true to our faith and love our neighbors as Jesus did, we will love people no matter what their religious or spiritual tradition may be. We will actively work for everyone's well-being, not because my neighbor is a Christian or even becomes a Christian. For if I want to faithfully follow Jesus, I love my neighbor because I am a Christian. Now Mark anticipated this radical message would fall on deaf ears, so it's no accident that his telling and showing this principle of inclusion is followed by the healing of a Gentile man unable to speak or hear. The episode comes at a conclusion of a traveling itinerary that symbolically embraces all Gentile territory surrounding Galilee. This inclusive Jesus can make even Gentiles hear and speak as Isaiah prophesied. And yet, later in this same book, we'll see that his own disciples remain deaf. The irony begins to refocus the narrative on the real mission of Jesus is to bring people out of denial toward discipleship. Through many episodes in the Gospels that deal with what is dirty and what is clean, we're, we're shown three ways that Christ forces us to reevaluate our dirt boundaries. First, real quick, he erases some of them. Certain things we call dirty, he calls clean. Second, he shows us that even, something, uh, even if something itself is dirty, contact with it doesn't make us dirty. Even if certain things do remain dirt, it's up to us to get alongside them and be in relationship with them, to sit down and eat with them and receive their generosity. And then third, Christ shows us that the mechanisms of cleaning need to be kept clear, that dirt should be given free access to the temple. Simply excluding what is dirty gives no help toward helping it to become clean. See, these re-evaluations were too much for the religious leaders of Christ's day. Their well-ordered society could not tolerate this man who stepped freely over dirt boundaries and claimed to come back with clean feet who tore down other boundaries altogether and then invited those who were dirty to come and be cleansed. He seemed to have no idea about the dangers of infection or the proper means of forgiveness. Here he was, just doling it out for free in the streets and undermining their monopoly and tidy profits. He either had to clean his act up or be expelled as dirty himself. Now, it would be easy for us to quickly condemn the Pharisees on how they used God's Word to exclude other people. But let me just share a story with you. Tony Campola tells this story. Some of you guys may know Tony. Uh, About a time he went to Honolulu. Anybody like to go to Honolulu? Like, I've been the last couple of years. It's a great place. Uh, And whenever he goes to Honolulu from, from Philadelphia... Uh, where he lives, it kind of throws his time clock off pretty wildly. And so he, at 3 o'clock in the morning, he kind of, it feels more like 9 a.m. And so this one particular night, it's 3 a.m., he's wide awake, he's feeling hungry, so he's wandering down the streets in Honolulu trying to find a place that he could get a bite to eat. And he finally found this one place, you know, on the the side streets. And um, he sat on one of the stools at the counter and waited to be served, this place was pretty much like a hole in the ground. It could have probably been called Greasy Spoon, would have been a good name for this place. He didn't bother touching the menu. He's afraid something might crawl out of it. That's how bad this place was, all right? Finally, the fat guy behind the counter came out and asked him, what do you want? He ordered a coffee and a donut, and he poured a cup of coffee. He wiped his grimy, grimy hands on his smudged apron and then grabbed the donut off the shelf behind him. He didn't bother using tongs or wax paper. He just picked up the donut with his grimy hands and handed it to Tony. So there he was sitting on on this uh, stool at a counter, 3.30 a.m., eating a donut and drinking some coffee, when all of a sudden the doors swing wide open, and to his discomfort, eight or nine provocative and boisterous prostitutes walk into the diner. Since this place was small, they all sat on both sides of him, their talk was rude and crude, and he felt quite out of place and was getting ready to leave. And, and then he overheard the woman sitting next to him say, Tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going to be 39. Her supposed friend responded in a very nasty tone So, what do you want from me? A birthday party? You want, you, want a, you want a birthday party? You want me to get a cake and sing you happy birthday? Well, the woman beside Tony responded, Come on, what, what do you mean? I was just telling you, that's all. I I don't want anything from you. I mean, why should you give me a birthday party? I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. Why should I have one now? When my friend heard that Tony, uh, he made a decision. He waited till they left, and then he asked the fat man behind the counter, do they come in here every night? He said, yeah, even the lady next to me. Yeah, yeah, that's Agnes. And she comes in here every night. Uh, Why why do you want to know? Well, I I heard it was her birthday tomorrow, and I thought it would be a good idea if we threw Agnes a birthday party right here tomorrow night. A smile crossed his chubby face, and he says, that's a great idea. I really like it. He called back to his wife in the back room and said, honey, come out here. This man has a great idea. He wants to throw a surprise party for Agnes tomorrow night. She said, that's wonderful. Agnes is really nice and kind, and and nobody ever does anything nice for her. So Tony says, look, I'll get all the decorations. I'll get the cake. I'll be here back by 2.30 a.m. Harry, the guy's name, says, great. uh, Don't bother about the cake. We got that covered. So 2.30, the next night, the diner was packed. The decorations were up. And, uh, and uh, they included a big sign that said, Happy Birthday, Agnes. So Harry's wife must have gotten the word out on the street because by 3.15, every prostitute in Honolulu was at this place. <laughs> I mean, it was wall-to-wall prostitutes and my friend Tony. And so, <laughs> and so at 3.30 a.m., on the dot, the diner door swung open, and there is Agnes and her friend. Tony emceed the whole thing, and and, uh, when they came uh, in, they all screamed, Happy Birthday! Agnes was so stunned and shaken. Her mouth fell open. Her legs seemed to buckle a bit. In fact, her friend had to grab her arm just to steady her, and she was led to one of the stools to sit down. Everyone sang Happy Birthday to her. Her eyes were moistening a bit, and when the birthday cake came in, She just lost it and just started crying openly. Harry told her, if you don't blow out the candles, I'm going to blow them out. (laughs) And after a few endless seconds, he did. He handed her the knife and said, cut the cake, Agnes, cut the cake. And Agnes looked down at the cake, and without taking her eyes off it, she slowly and softly said, look, look, Harry, if it's all right with you, uh, I... I mean, if it's okay, I kind of, what I want to ask you is, is it okay if I keep the cake for a little while? He said, sure, it's your cake. You can keep it as long as you want. She said, I I, I just live down the street, a couple doors down, and I want to take it home and show my mom, and then I'll come back, okay? So she got off her stool, she picked up the cake, and she held it as if it were the holy grail and walked slowly away toward the door, everybody was motionless as she left the diner. And when that door closed, there was stunned silence in that place. Not knowing what else to do, Tony broke the silence by saying, what do you say that we pray? He says, looking back on it now, it seems more than a strange thing for a sociologist to be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning. But it just felt like the right thing to do. So he prayed for Agnes, he prayed for her salvation, he prayed that her life would be changed and that God would be good to her, and when he finished praying, Harry leaned over the counter and said, hey, you never told me a preacher, you were a preacher, what kind of church do you go to? And then in one of those moments where just the right words came to Tony, he says, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. Perry waited a moment and said, like, no, you don't. There's no church like that. If there were a church like that, I'd join it. (laughs) And wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all love to join a church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning? Well, that's the kind of community that Jesus came to create. You, You can't read the Gospels without recognizing that Jesus loved To party with the prostitutes and tax killers, he loved to connect meaningfully with those society considered unclean and expendable and leave them with a sense of worth. Let me ask you, what unclean people is God calling you to touch and make clean? You know, being a people of welcome... Opens up new possibilities for God to work in amazing ways. A number of years ago when I was leading a church in Hollywood, California, a lady by the name of Latifa came up to me and said, Hey, JR, uh, my name's Latifa and I'm a Muslim. And I said, Welcome, Latifa. It's so glad that you could be here. She says, JR, I've been to many different churches in LA. And when I tell them I'm a Muslim, all of a sudden I feel this barrier, this wall that's erected between me and them. And I just want to tell you, I want to thank you for when I came to this church, I only felt welcome. Guess what? She came back because she felt welcome. She came back. We happened to be doing a series, an eight-week series on the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And she was there every week. She, it was kind of like a, a place, uh, not quite this nice, but we were. it had a balcony and a downward. And she was kind of sitting right there in the center of the row. Everybody could see her. Everybody knew Latifa. She was kind of a character, Right? And so there it was, right at the last message and before I'm in prayer, she, she stands up out of her chair, she puts her hands in the air, and she says, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. And then she falls to her face, crying in tears. There's amazing things that can happen when we learn what it means to be a people welcome like Jesus, and that we welcome others as Jesus has welcomed us. Let's pray. Father, help us to become a people of welcome, for you are a welcoming God. From the call of Abraham, where you blessed him, and all the nations of the earth through him, to John's vision of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation gathered around your throne, we see that you are a welcoming God. And we see this most clearly in your son, Jesus, who constantly crossed boundaries to demonstrate that you welcome all. Whatever he touched became clean. And with the help of the Spirit, help us to follow Christ in this. We pray in his name. Amen.